0: Well we continue in 1st John chapter 2 and let me read the text for today in your hearing hear with me God's powerful word. John writing in verse 7 of chapter 2 says beloved I'm writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning the old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's heart-searching word. May we hear it and be changed. Father, come and be present over the preaching and may the truth and power of all that you placed into John's life and words be ours today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I was talking with someone uh, not too long ago who had a chance to go to Bible college and uh, study for future ministry and is involved, involved indeed in ministry today. And, and uh, he was commenting on something that pretty much, for, at least from my generation, every first-year Greek student found out in Bible college or seminary. And that is that uh, usually in New Testament Greek, uh, classes. Sometime in your first year, you're assigned a book to go through and translate from the Greek to English and to study in depth. And uh, from my experience, that, that book was always First John. First year Greek when I went to seminary eons ago was First John. And uh, my friend shared the same experience. That was his experience in Bible college. The first book you're given to study and to, to get your acquaintance with the Greek language, the Koine Greek of the New Testament, is 1 John. It's known because, uh, it is chosen for that because it's been known as the simplest to translate. Uh, it's the simplest uh, Greek text in terms of the vocabulary that John used. It's not a wide and expansive vocabulary and it's not complicated. It's, it's simple, you could say. And the syntax, the way words come together and concept and sentences are put together is simpler. And so that's where all the baby Greek students go. And that's where I went, that's where my friend went. Now, it, we, we found as we studied it together in my first year Greek class that this language is simple, but it's deep. John, is, he writes in simple words and structures, but his meanings are profound. And uh, we, 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 we began to go through the depths of the Greek together, and that was only surpassed by the depths of John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the truths that he was communicating. Remarkable. And that was John's way. I think if you read the Gospel of John, which is also one of the simpler New Testament books to translate, you'll find simple but profound words. That was John's way, and he wanted to communicate in clear ways, but he he was burdened to communicate deep truths. That's why I've told you already, as we've gone into 1 John, now into the second chapter, that the word know, K-N-O-W, is repeated dozens of times in this epistle because John wanted you to gain an understanding to know that you know, as we talked about last week, some of these great truths about the true Christ and what it means to have a true walk with God. Because he was writing to, to, to churches that were immersed in all kinds of falsehood and false teaching and confusion. Now, the way John is, has put together this epistle, it's virtually impossible to translate. That's another thing my friend and I figured out. He said his Greek teacher played a trick on him in the first classes, first uh, sessions of class. He assigned the class to outline First John. And they all came back confused and frustrated, and he said, psych, it was a fake, because there is no way. To clearly outline 1 John. At least that was his opinion. And I've tried it and many Bible teachers have. And this book isn't given to a linear outline like what Paul might have written or even Peter, but it's, uh, it cycles over and over back over the same points and he makes them in deeper or, or different ways. It was a book that was written as closely as we can tell to help Christians know what true and classic Christianity is and to know that they had a true walk with the God of that Christianity. And so there are three tests that many Bible scholars have looked at First John and seen, and they, they, they appear over and over again. Three simple but repeated tests that he applies, and he says if you apply these to your life and the lives of other professing Christians, these will help you know whether you know the true Christ and you're living a true Christian life. And I've repeated them to you at least twice uh, since we started. Here are the three simple tests. One was doctrine. Do you know the true Jesus? Second is obedience. Are you keeping the commands of Jesus? And the third is relationships. Are you loving, which Jesus summarizes the greatest command in an authentic way, not only loving God, but in John's epistle, more as of greater importance in a way was loving other believers. Now, we've already seen these come up. In the first chapter, when we, when we began at chapter 1, verse 1, John went through eight characteristics of the biblical Christ, the true Jesus. And so he applied the first test of, do you know the true Christ? Do you know the biblical Jesus Last week, we just found an example of the second test, which is the test not of doctrine, but of obedience. Are you keeping the commands of Jesus? And we saw in chapter 2, verse 3, that he says, by this, we know that we have come to know him. There's his theme, if we keep his commands. So last week, John gave us the second test. Today, we come into the third. And by the way, these will all be repeated. You'll find them again as I teach further in this epistle. The third is the relationship test. Are you loving people the way God within you through the Holy Spirit would love them? And so we know that that's true because this whole section centers around this warning in verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So now we have the love test, the relationship test. Do you pass that? He was sort of like a a teacher that liked to give pop quizzes. Maybe you had somebody like that in your high school or college years. I had one that loved to do it, but he also was one of my favorite teachers because he would always review the material so heavily that you were pretty, pr- pretty prepared, even if you didn't do extra study. And he was fond of going through something, and maybe, you've had, maybe you, you've had somebody like this. He'd go through a section of the syllabus, then he'd stop and look at the whole class and say, you'll see this again. That was the key. That was the tip, that in the quiz that'll land next week, that's going to be a question. None of you guys had this guy? That's how I survived school. I followed him around for four years. Anyway, so John in a way is doing this. He's, he's pop quizzing you throughout the epistle to test the the reality of your faith. And he drops these, these, these tests upon you all the way through. And so uh, this is what John is doing now. The love test, or the relationship test, is, it comes into view here in this section. Now, when we talk about love in our confused society, we need to identify a little bit clear, more clearly what kind of love he's talking about. Some of you have heard good Bible teachers know what I'm going to do next. I'm going to talk about the fact that, of course, in our English language, we have one word for love that covers everything from pizza to, to philosophy, but in Greek, they, of course, they had multiple words. It was the language of specificity, as one teacher told me once. In the Greek of the first century, that the, the Greek language that the church used and John wrote, there were four words for, for, that, that could be used alternatively to express different aspects or types of love. You've probably heard them. I'm just going to go over the, the, the most uh, familiar three. There was the word eros, which primarily meant a physical love. We get our word erotic from it. That's not used here. There was the word phileo, and you've heard probably taught that we, uh, that means uh, the kind of love that a friend has for a friend or a brother has for a brother. And you may know that Philadelphia, the church at Philadelphia in Revelation and our Philadelphia talks about, it's built off of that word brotherly love, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Yeah. Well, John doesn't use either of those two words throughout his epistle. He uses the third word that's that's most most well-known, agape, is the Greek pronunciation. And that was a word that the secular society used, but the Christians took it and poured deeper significance into it. What did agape love mean when it was used? And John uses it here in this passage and throughout this letter. Agape love is a love that, it's not like Eros, which was physically, physically attracted and selfish, or Phileo, which man I love you because you stir these sentiments in me. I, I love you because I like you. Agape love is a love that's unselfish in nature. It's a love that gives and expects nothing in return. One author wrote, it's a love that says, I love you in spite of yourself. How about that one? I love you anyway, regardless of the circumstances, end of quote. It's a love that puts the needs of the other person before your own. That's the love that is talked about with the word agape. That's the love. That's the word love in verse 10. And throughout this epistle, that's the only word John uses. So now you get an understanding. It is the love of commitment. It's not emotionally driven. It's not driven out of affection. It's not driven out of mutual like, even at times. It's driven out of obeying the command of God. Now, you'll also have to admit that... Uh, this is essentially a supernatural thing. And that, of course, is why it's a mark of classic Christianity, because you can only love this way when Jesus himself, the master of selfless love, loves others through you. And you'll find that that's one of his biggest points. So John is going to apply the test to these believers. And uh, I'm going to give you five truths that will help you pass the pop quiz basically what I'm going to do in this passage. From verse 7 through through verse 11, there's five truths or five principles about biblical love. So let me walk through them together. And by the way, class, you'll see this again. (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit will test you again and again and again in circumstance, in relationship, or simply through the revelation of his word, which he will do today. He will call you to see whether you're living out that biblical love. So what's the first truth you need to know? Well, love is the oldest commandment. He begins in verse 7, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Now, if you're, you're, you're reading ahead a little bit, and good students do that, You'll notice that we're going to come into a contradiction in verse 8 because he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. And so you would ask John, well, John, which is it? And he's going to answer you like I have from this platform many times. His answer would be yes. Which one is it? Is it an old commandment or a new commandment? The answer is yes. Now you're fully confused. Well, that's why you need to listen to the preaching. So stick with it. Now, the theme is love. Scholars have said it's only mentioned once, once in verse 10, but the whole context is pretty clear. He's revolving around that idea. He's building an argument that biblical love is the sign of a true Christian. Agape love, selfless love, is the sign of the true believer. So the question is, What do we need to understand about it? And the first principle he gives is that it's the oldest commandment that God has given to his people. Now, he says, it's an old commandment that you had from the beginning. What's he referring to? Where did they get it? Why should it be old and familiar to them? Well, many of his listeners, though not all, came from a Jewish background or were familiar with Jewish teaching. So I'm going to give you a twofold answer. How was this already an old commandment to these folks? Well, part 1 they had heard it all their lives if they were Jewish. They had heard it all their lives if they were Jewish. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in your Bibles and verse 5 is the first saying or portion of the scriptures that a young Jewish boy or girl would learn. It's known today as the Shema or hear. In H E A R based off the first word in our English translation, hear O Israel Shemach of Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So loving God was the emerging principle that God gave the the, the first people that he gathered, the people of Israel. It was drilled into their consciousness from very young ages. Not only a love for God, but if you go over to Leviticus in chapter 19, you see another commandment, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. The Bible says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's love according to the commandment of God. Loving your neighbor as yourself, unselfishly with devotion, and so you see that John is saying, back in the memory banks of their lives, particularly if they were Jewish. If you're Jewish, you've heard this all your lives. It's an old commandment. You know this to be true about the God that you you claim to worship. But. If they were not Jewish, but they were familiar with the teachings of Jesus and the church, here's the second part to my answer. How was it an old commandment? First part, they'd heard it all their lives if they were Jewish. But secondly, they had heard it often from the lips of Jesus. That's how the church was taught. Church was taught through oral tradition and the teaching of the apostles and the disciples. Everything that Jesus had taught and central to what Jesus had taught was the life of love. How do we know this? Matthew chapter 22 is just one example. In Matthew chapter 22, and begin at verse 35, Jesus says, is approached by a lawyer to, to challenge him. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, that's a tough question to answer in a way because what they called the mitzvot, which was a collection of all the laws that they could possibly find in the, in the whole Old Testament, had 613 different laws. So that was a gotcha question. However you answer that, you're sliding one of the 613. Well, Jesus answers him and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Deuteronomy 6, 5. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did something no teacher had ever done. He joined both of those together. Loving God's not enough. Loving your neighbor's not enough. It's, it's a whole orbit of who you are. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. He joined them together for the first time in Jewish teaching. And then he added verse 40 on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What was he saying? You don't have to itemize all 613 laws in the Old Testament mitzvot and make sure that you keep all of them equally and passionately. You don't have to become an expert like the Pharisees were. You just have to let these two commitments guide your life. And if you love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and commit to love your neighbor as yourself, you know what you're automatically going to do? You're going to keep all those commandments, all those commandments. The, the passion of your heart determines the purity of your life. Now think about this. It's a, one of the great things that the Bible teaches is that if you love someone, you're not going to sin against them. That's what he was saying here. All, your, your love for relationship with God and, with, and toward other believers will determine how well you treat them and how, how, how passionately you'll keep God's commandments. I mean, if you go back to Exodus chapter 20 for a minute, and you, and, you, and you go to the heart of the mitzvot, which was the Ten Commandments. Most of us are familiar with most, if not all of those. And they are, they are commandments that, that govern a clear moral life. But if you, if, you, if you look at the commandments, the great reason to keep them, according to the Scripture, is not just because you'll be blessed in the keeping, and it's not just what you're not supposed to do. You keep them if you love God and you love others. For example, in, in Exodus 20, verse, verse 2, I am the Lord your God, brought you out of, out of Egypt. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. If you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, are you going to have any other gods before him? No, you won't. By nature, by, by, the, by the reflex of your affection for him, you're not going to be an idolater. Why? Because you love him. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Why will it strike you so significantly if you do take the name of the Lord in vain? Because you love him. You'll You'll be struck over that. Go down to the second half of the Decalogue, which is relationships with others. The first part is loving God with all your heart and soul and mind. But as you go farther in the commandments, here's relationships with your neighbor, your brother. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Are you going to do that simply because there's a blessing wrapped into that in the second half, that your days may be long? No, you're going to do it because you love your mother and your father. You won't have to even think about it. So a a heart driven by love will be moved to honor the commands of God, both toward him and toward others. You're not going to murder somebody, verse 13, because you love them. It would never even enter into your mind frame. So If you love someone, you won't sin against them. You won't break any law against them. Now you might be thinking at this point, well, okay, that's the old principle. So is it all about what I won't do or shouldn't do? Yes, but there's more. Let's go to the second thing you need to know. Not only is love the oldest standard that it's woven throughout God's moral code for his people, but secondly, love is also the newest standard. Go back to 1 John. And here's where he looks like he's contradicting himself. I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. I just explained how that could be true. It's this word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you. So again, you're saying, which is it? Has he got some kind of apostolic Alzheimer's going on? What's what's happening? I mean, you know, you're just you're wondering. And it, it, both are true at the same time. Now, how is it new and yet old? At the same time, it is a new commandment. And again, the Greek comes to our, to our aid here because there were two different words in the Greek language for new. Wouldn't you imagine that? There was new in the sense that was simply in respect to time. Let me illustrate. Um, my wife will tell you I'm a creature of habit. I don't like change and I uh, don't like innovation. I, I, I buy the same kind of stuff. I buy the same kind of clothes. And here's a little transparency. I buy the same kind of shoes over and over again. If you follow me around, which is kind of creepy if you do, um, <laughs> you will have noticed that for all the years I've been with you, when I get onto a preaching platform, I wear Rockport Sport dress shoes. Nine and a half, in case you're interested. <laughs> I used to buy them down at, at, at the mall there and then COVID hit and no, they no longer stock shoes. I was offended. So now I buy them on Amazon and I buy a couple of pairs a year and it's, it's right in my little shopping list. I don't even have to think about it. I click on the Rockport Sport 9 1⁄2 black dress shoe. So the, I've got these now, but I'm going to order some new ones. And when they arrive, just because I have a compulsion about this, but anyway, I'm going to order them at the turn of the year for the holiday. When they arrive, they're going to come in in, in a Rockport box, and when I open them up, they're going to be new in the sense that they're the exact same shoe, they're just new. In other words, they're they're, they're freshly manufactured. But there's no change in the shoe. The laces are the same, the design is the same, the stitching is the same, the heel height is the same. I'm in heaven. It's fantastic. So that's one word for new, new in time, but it's the same old thing. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is kynos, which meant something that was new, but there was a, a new quality about it. It hadn't been seen before. I'd have to order a a pair of shoes, but they'd have to be different. They might be a different shade. They might be different laces, might have a different heel design. So they're new shoes, but they're also new in quality. They're they're, they're something I hadn't seen before, Kainos. So it's something that's new in the sense that there's a fresh or new or different quality to it. That's what's used here. You could compare it to music, for example. One author that I, I studied this week compared it this way. Consider a piece of music. You've heard it for years and know the score well, yet at the hands of a skilled conductor and a master symphony orchestra, that piece of music you've heard many times before becomes something new and fresh. Maybe you've seen that if you're a classic music, classical music person. I'm really not. I'm kind of a popular music person, so I would put it this way. Most of us know what a cover song is. You're taking an old classic, but a new artist takes it and rearranges it, does some different vocalizations to it, maybe adds a bridge in the middle that's different, and now you have a cover of an old song, but it's got a fresh quality to it. The Beatles have been covered by Everybody Under the Sun, and we know all their old songs, but most of you know them under the cover. The new, the new aspect to it. In, in a sense, he's saying, this is an old song for you. Love God and love one another. But Jesus, when he came, because notice he it says, it's a new commandment, which is true in him. Jesus came, and when he taught on it, he added a, a new dimension, a, a freshness to it. He made it into something even more than you understood it to be. He added a new quality. I hope you see that. So how, how do we know this? Well, in your hearing earlier, I had read for you John chapter 13. David read it from the pulpit here. John 13, 34 and 35 is the example of that. Jesus teaching to his disciples, and he said, A new commandment I give to you, John 13, 34, that you love one another, and then here's the new design, the new freshness, the new quality, the new aspect to this, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Wow! That's That's leveling it up. The old commandment said, love God as much as you can, from who you are with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is taking that and sending it sky high by saying, not only are you to do that, I give you a new quality to that. Love people as you see me loving them. Love one another in that way. And when you do that, that's so supernatural, so unusual, so unheard of, so unseen, that look at what he says in the next verse, by this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another because they're going to see me in you because I'm the only one that loves that way. That took it to an entirely different level. That's why John says something new is true in him. He came and he He was the example of that. So it's not just what you don't do. Now he's calling you into what you need to do, and that's to love God as I love. Now the question then, of course, comes into your mind, how did Jesus love? And my answer would be sacrificially. Sacrificially. No question about it. David Allen has written a wonderful commentary in 1 John, and, and he he took the concept and, and, and explored the idea of how Jesus loved and his comment in this passage in 1 John, he says, in verse 8, the phrase in him means in Jesus... The greatest definition of love, therefore, is the person of Jesus Christ. He added the, the highest dimension, if you will. If you want to see what love is all about, study the life of Jesus, and you'll discover that he is the supreme demonstration of love. Think about all the different kinds of people he loved. There was Mary Magdalene with her sordid past. There was the rich young ruler. There was Nicodemus, the religious and proud Pharisee. There was Zacchaeus, the greedy tax collector. And you can just add the whole the whole string of people that I taught you in the gospel of the unlovely that he loved. Think about those 12 disciples. He writes, if you were going to pick 12 to be disciples, you wouldn't have picked them. There was impetuous Peter. There was doubting Thomas. There is treacherous Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. All of these 12 men with all their weaknesses, internal disagreements and failure to follow Jesus fully to the end. Jesus continued to love through it all, what did the Bible say about Jesus as he approached the final night of his life? He, heading to the upper room, he loved his own, and the Bible says he loved them to the end, to the Greek, to the uttermost, to the highest level at which he could and the highest level at which they needed. Nobody has ever loved anybody like Jesus did. And yet here he says, it, what you see in him is the, the new call of the command to love others. Alan goes on. We all know we should love our friends, but Jesus taught we should love our enemies and then showed us how to do it. Jesus loved his enemies. Even when they were putting him to death, he prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He probably prayed that prayer as I've taught you when we were in the crucifixion accounts. He prayed that prayer multiple times in the Greek over and over again, pulling himself up on the cross being saying once again, father, forgive them. And then a next breath, Father, forgive them. It was a repeated sacrificial prayer of the Savior, for they know not what they do. He prayed it multiple times, prayed it for the leaders who clamored around the cross, mocking him, Father, forgive them. He prayed for the Roman soldiers when they drove the spikes and lifted the cross on the crossbar and dropped it down. He prayed, Father, forgive them. And then the Roman soldiers, sometimes later, as he gazed down and saw them throwing dice for his garments, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The world, Alan says, has never seen love like they saw in Jesus Christ, the quintessential example of love. So yeah, there's a new call for the church, an old commandment, but amplified and lived out in a new way. And you're saying, wow, that's amazing. Only Jesus could do that. He was amazing to watch, wasn't he? Yeah, except John doesn't let you quite finish that thought because he says in verse 2, at the same time, it's a new commandment, I'm writing to you, which is true in him, and then what's the next phrase? And in you. Oh, wow. By the miracle of the Holy Spirit living in his people now, he's now able in person to love people at that new level through you. Huh. He expects to do it through you. You say, how is that possible? It's still a mystery every day that I seek to follow him in it. But Romans 5, 5, my Bible tells me that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love of God, the love of God, to love love like Jesus loved is present within us and the person of the Holy Spirit is willing to express it through us. That's why like Galatians 5.22, the very first of the fruits of the Spirit was love. I don't know how it works. I simply step out and you do too in faith when God calls to love, the, the unlovely, when God calls to love Uh, in in a context where you don't even want to, and you step out and you ask, Lord, I can't do this, but I know you can do it through me. I know you can do it through me in my marriage, in my parenting, in, in my relationships, in my workplace. I know that you can do it through me, and I'm going to obey you and expect you to come with very attendant power and help that love be expressed. And just like Jesus said in verse 40 of John 13, when that happens... When Jesus is allowed to love through who you are as an act of the will, you love others in his name, through who you are and where you are. John says the kingdom of darkness dims a little bit and the kingdom of light dawns a little bit. Look at what he says. When people live this way in 1 John 2, the darkness passes away and the true light shines. I don't know how to explain that, except that when God's people trust them, trust him to let him love others, lost people and people in the church by his power through them, when the world sees that, the kingdom of darkness dims a little bit and the kingdom of light that Jesus is building through his church rises a little bit. You want to know what heaven looks like? It's when verse eight is completely fulfilled. But it's on its way. And so the beautiful experience of the church can start to reflect it. Well, here's the third part of what you need to know to pass the test. Love is not only the oldest command, but also new and its power is shown by Jesus. But verse 9 says it's the deepest test. Now we get into where he applies it to lives. He says, whoever, that's a warning sign in 1 John, it's a test. He's, he's setting people apart. He's saying, judge yourselves. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Wow. John wrote it. John said it. It's, it's a test. And he, see how here he, he, he places it in the life of the church. He says, whoever hates his brother. So it's, it's in the intimate life of the fellowship of the believers. It's not just dealing with non-Christians outside in your life. No, he brings it home to the church versus the world. And, and, and he says, whoever says he is in the light. So that's, remember we talked about professing and possessing last week. That's a professing Christian. I'm a Christian, they say. But hates his brother. I looked at that and I said, Lord, let me go to the Greek because I'm hoping it's not as intense as the English. What does it mean? Is hate the best translation? The Greek word "miseo." when I saw that, I thought, oh, this isn't looking good. (laughs) Then I found out it doesn't mean to hate. It actually means to detest. You feel better now? Excuse me? Not only that, it's in the present active indicative, which means it's a habit for you. One commentator wrote Notice that the tense of the verb hates or detests is present and suggests habitual action. The tense of the verb is more important, very important at this point. John is describing someone, listen, whose settled disposition and conduct is one of hatred toward his fellow believers. That's overwhelming to even read that. You can't have hate and love in your heart at the same time it's impossible. End of quote. It seems to be, well, I'll just read it again, a settled disposition of hatred toward his fellow believers. It characterizes you. If you're that way, and John casts great doubt upon the reality of your faith because the test is telling. You say, well, what if I just struggle with certain people? And for good reason. I mean, I could tell you stories, Pastor, about this person or that person or this event or that event and things I've never gotten over. and Well... I think William Barclay once said that, though I don't trust his theology in every point, he was a good observer of how the terms would apply in much of the New Testament. He said this once, our brother cannot be disregarded. He is part of the landscape. The question is, how do we regard him? We may regard him as negligible or with contempt or as a nuisance or as an enemy or as a brother. And if he is a brother, his needs are our needs and his interests are our interests. He must be loved. And yet John says, if there's something different that characterizes you, ask serious questions. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, look at the phrase, still in darkness, that disturbed me because you know what that's basically saying. I think to me, the way I read the English, it's, it's, it's stating he's never come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He's fooling himself spiritually. He's not yet the Lord's. He's not born again. I researched that for more, some more, and another commentator I looked at said this about this section. It's troubling. Quote, John says, if you say you're in the light but hate your brother, and again, a settled lifestyle of hatred, you are actually still in darkness. The moral and spiritual atmosphere in your life is darkness. It is difficult, this author says, to determine exactly what John means by this statement, and I'll admit that. It could be that such a person has never truly been born again. Consistent hatred for people may evidence an unregenerate heart. In the subterranean streams of caves, for example, there are fish that have lived in darkness so long they no longer have eyes. I thought that was interesting. If you continually live in the darkness of hatred, your heart may be unregenerate. He says... It is also possible, John is referring to true believers who are failing in this area of love. You cannot say, I know Jesus and hate other Christians. If hatred characterizes your life, and maybe that's a revealing word, characterizes, then you are in the dark spiritually and are not living according to the light of the gospel. End of quote. Those are the two possibilities. But the language seems to strongly imply a false relationship with God. Again, somebody might come back and say, well, you just don't understand it. Um, I find this really difficult to do, and I just don't like some people. I have reasons. Well, remember what I said about the definitions of the words? Which word did he use? He didn't use the word like. You won't find it in the entire five chapters. He didn't use it. He only used one word, agapao, to love as an act of the will, to love out of obedience to God. Let me read you again the definition of agape. Agape love is a love that is unselfish in nature, a love that gives and expects nothing in return. It is a love that says, I love you in spite of yourself. I love you anyway, regardless of the circumstances. It is a love that puts the needs of the other person before your own. End of quote. You see, that's supernatural. And John says it's the deepest test as you talk about it. Let me go to the last two things here. I'll let you kind of live in that. That's tough tough to hear, isn't it? Like I said, it's the simplest gospel, but it's the hardest to hear. The simplest epistle, the hardest to hear. Let me go to the last two things and go back to the passage because he, he, he takes his thought further. Then he goes to verse 10, which is just as hard hitting. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So there he talks about its impact in your life and he just gives some more descriptions here. Loving others, even if it's by faith, that, that's really what I'm talking about. you remember the, you ever heard the phrase, I, "I love them by faith?" We used to joke about it. Actually, it's an accurate description of agape love. It's not out of affection, it's not out of convenience, not out of emotion, not out of reciprocation. Loving others often is by faith, And let me just say that when you get to a certain point in life, I think when you get to the older years of life, um, the longer you live, the more of your loving is by faith. Because you've lived long enough for enough time to have passed and enough situations to have occurred and enough experiences to have been tasted for everybody in your life to disappoint you. Isn't that true? And by the way, dear friend, for you to disappoint everybody in your life, That's one of the things that happens when you get to a certain age and a spiritual experience. Oh, the call to love. Aren't you so glad it's not based on performance or circumstance or personality? Oh, you can still love, even if there's pain and disappointment. And if you do, John says something very encouraging is true about you. If you love your brother, verse 10, you'll abide in the light. And in you, there will be no cause for stumbling. Abiding in the light. That's a person that you really don't have any question. Yeah, they're the Lord's. Why? Because I see God's love for him and through them to others. There's no other explanation but Jesus. So we know that they abide in the light. There's not many question marks about their relationship with God, whether it's true or not. And then he says there'll be no cause for stumbling. I think that that means that you won't be tempted to treat people badly because your commitment is just to love them. And so you won't fall into sin in regard to other people as easily. You won't get trapped in bitterness as easily. You won't get involved in, in whatever aspect of mistreating others as easily. You won't get involved in the chronics of relational breakdown as easily. Because all that stuff doesn't really matter. You, you, you say my, my, my commitment is to continue to love as much as I can under the power of God's spirit. That's my greatest calling. It's not to be right. It's not to be well-treated. It's not to be regarded. It's not to have any of my agenda satisfied. I surrender all that. I just want to be able to love them and obey God and be Him for them. Remember that connection between the law and love I mentioned earlier, the Ten Commandments? If you love, you will do the right thing in their life and before the Lord. It might be difficult and sometimes you're going to fail but the longer you abide with Jesus the more you're going to just want to simply do that. We're going to find later on John develops that, this apostle of love. Christianity in its certain sense is quite simple but immensely difficult. Last thing love is also the wisest life, verse 11. Now he goes and he argues from the negative. He contrasts the person in verse 10 who's beginning to live the life of love and and affirming their faith and And they're walking in in the light in relationships as much as they can, not perfectly, but intentionally. But whoever hates his brother, who stays into that negative cycle, is in the darkness, not abiding in the light, but in the darkness, and walks in the darkness. Again, troubling, troubling description of who they may be, and certainly what their life is like, and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Do you want to have a frustrated, broken life? Do you want to have a life where you you turn back on the end of it and you look back over it and you see human mistake and relational breakdown at one instance after the other? Simply live a loveless life. Never get a control over the hatred that may dominate your life and you will walk in the darkness. You don't know where you're going. Loving others is the wisest life if for no other reason than living a loveless life leads to tragedy. John says, don't be this. Notice he says, whoever, it can be true of any person professing Christ. Oh, it's it's a great searching test that he gives us. Hates in the perfect present, active, indicative again. It's that characteristic lifestyle, and it seems to be directed at everyone. You're in the darkness. And you can end up with a life that simply finishes as a tragedy. Daniel Aiken, in his commentary, sums up verse 11. He says, Verse 11 returns to those who are in darkness. He goes to the negative as he concludes. If you continually hate your brother, four things are true for you. First, you're in the darkness, which is spiritual death, he says. Second, you walk and live in darkness. Third, you do not know where you're going. And fourth, you're blind. In the darkness of spiritual death, there is the absence of love and the absence of God in our lives. And tragically, we don't even see it, having lived so long in the darkness. We're like blind men in a dark room, who have no idea where they are or where they're going. It is a true tragedy. End of quote. The Epistle of First John, the easiest book in the Greek New Testament to read, but maybe the hardest book to hear. But hear it we must.